we have been having fun looking in the Scripture for questions that God has asked. And much like parents with kids, you often ask a question of your kids, not because you don't know the answer, but because you want them to find the answer. And how many of you realize when God asks us a question, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer. When he asks us a question, he is either trying to draw our attention to something or he's trying to show us the answer. I'm going to read in Numbers chapter 22 today and we're going to find a question that God asked Balaam. How many of you remember who Balaam is? How many of you remember the story of the talking donkey? We got more hands on that one. The donkey's more famous than Balaam. It's a bit of a confusing story because there's Balak and Balaam. And they just sound so similar. But the story goes like this. The Israelites come from Egypt. They have had all that victory. The the Red Sea opened up. They went through. The strongest army in the world was defeated through God's power behind them. Then they show up in Canaan and the neighbors are freaking out. And Balak is one of the kings, he's a neighbor. And so he is totally freaking out and he's trying to figure out, I I don't dare attack these people. I mean, they just destroyed the strongest, most powerful nation on the earth. So he gets an idea, maybe I can curse them. And he remembers a guy by the name of Balaam who lives by the Euphrates River. And Balaam is known to be a prophet of God. So he sends some ambassadors and some princes and he sends some special people to Balaam's house with lots and lots of gifts and he says, hey, come and curse this numerous people that have come next door. And Balaam, he considers it and I'm going to pick up Let's see, where should we pick up? So, Balaam says to that group, we'll pick up in verse 8. He says to them, spend the night, Balaam said, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. Verse 9 says, God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? That is today's question. Who are Are these men with you? Balaam answered, Oh, it's Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message. A people had come out of Egypt, covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, Do not go with them, period. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. Now, How many of you grew up with uh, in Sunday school? I grew up in Sunday school. How many of you guys remember the flannel graph? If you don't know what the flannel graph was, that was like high tech in like the late 80s. And what it was would be these little cutouts of like Bible characters and this felt background and the little felt characters would get stuck up there and the teacher would be posting, picking them up and moving them around and telling the story. And I remember 
the Bible stories with those flannel graphs. And you know something? I still remember thinking, well, he told them not to curse him. Why did he get in trouble for going with them? I remember having that thought. And as I'm reading through, I just want to bring attention in case any of you ever had that thought. He said, do not go with them, period. You shall not put a curse on them. He said, don't hang out with them. Well, so here's what Balaam does. Balaam says, oh, I would like to go, but I can't. And it's interesting. I've been reading Jewish history by Josephus, and he tells the same story the Bible tells from the historical perspective. And they, that the Bible is inspired words of God, inerrant. Josephus is not. But it's interesting to read because he tells the story from the perspective of the Jewish history. And he mentions in, in his account, he says that Balaam specifically told them, I want to go, but God doesn't want me to, so I can't. And so they leave, and they go back, and they tell Balak he said no. Balak sends another group with more gifts and this is where the part of the story that we're a little more familiar with happens. They come, they offer even more stuff. He says, stay again, I'll ask God again, as if God was going to change his mind. God says again, no, don't curse them. Balaam goes with them. There's an angel trying to block the way. Balaam can't see it. His donkey can see it. His donkey keeps trying to go around and scraping his leg against the fence and, and trying to get through. And he starts to beat the donkey. The donkey, God gives the ability to speak. And the donkey says, hey, what are you doing? I'm just trying to save your life. Don't you see that there's an angel there? And he, his eyes are opened. He discovers. He realizes he's wrong. He says, hey, should I go back? And God says, no, I'll let you go forward, but don't say anything Accept what I tell you to say. And that is in, uh, yeah, I'll skip that verse. But then he gets there, Balak says, come, curse them. And he warns Balak, he says, I can only say what God says, but I'll give it a try. He goes up to one mountain spot, he overlooks the entire people, he prays, God gives him a major blessing over Israel. And he blesses Israel, and, and he comes back, and Balak is all upset. He just hired this guy to make things easier, and now it's going to be harder. And he says, well, let's try another spot. And so the, the belief at the time was that you know, you could have a God of the mountains and you could have a God of the valleys and they might be different gods. And so he thought, well, maybe if we get to a different area, then maybe it'll be different. And he takes him to a different place and Balaam pr prays again and blesses him. And then he takes him to a third place and Balaam prays again and he blesses him. And you think we're getting off topic, but we're not. Because if you look in Numbers 31, several chapters later, it says, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that the plague struck God's people. Again, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. The Bible references this. Josephus' history books goes into a lot of detail of how Balaam told the king, I can't curse them, they are blessed. Now, who else is blessed? We're blessed. We are blessed. When Satan comes against us, it's, it's like Balak coming up against Israel. It's like, whoa, greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world. These people just took out God's power is with them. How in the world am I going to defeat him? And Balaam says, look, I cannot curse them, but I really, really, really want to earn all that stuff. And what I'll do is I will tell you how to cause a temporary setback. In the history book, that's how he describes it. He says, you won't be able to destroy them entirely because God is going to bless them over the long haul. But I will show you how to get a temporary foothold and how to give a setback and how you can bring God's anger against them at least for a while. That's what he told the king. And what did he say? Did he say, attack them with your mighty armies? No. He said, send your women. This is what he said. He said, send the prettiest of your women, go in there, befriend the men, and then once you've earned their trust, convince them to break their laws and to disobey God. Literally, he said, befriend them. They came. They went down there. They married into the Israelite camp. And then convinced the Israelites to disobey. Here's the question. When Satan sees that you are protected with God's blessing, what strategy might he use to get around that blessing? Did he forget how successful that was? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, says, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are a way of life to keep you from the evil woman. And I would add, or the evil man. This isn't a sexist sermon. We're talking about people. We recognize the devil will use people. How many of you got saved in church? How many of you were invited by a friend? We had a lot of hands. When, when God wants to bless us, he often blesses us through people. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But if you remember back to some of the stupid things that you have done in your life, let's say maybe cigarettes, drugs, alcohol, vandalism, whatever dumb thing you did at some point that we don't have to talk about. Was there someone with you? <laughs> I see heads. I didn't ask you to raise your hands, but all the heads are just going, yeah. Why? Why? Proverbs chapter 12, 
verse 26 says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now, I want to go back to the question that was asked of Balaam. It's interesting, Balaam was a prophet of God. He heard, and it's interesting, he was very, very accurate. Like, he knew. It wasn't like maybe. I mean, he went, he asked God, God talked to him clearly. He came back. There are like six different prophecies that Balaam gives to Balak during that time. He just keeps telling him things, and they're all true. And even his advice that didn't come from God was sound, even though it was wicked. But Balaam got derailed. And it's interesting. I find it interesting that God didn't say, what did they offer to pay you? His question wasn't, how much are they paying you for this? He just said, who is it that you're surrounding yourself with? Who are those men? God knew the answer. God knew the answer. It's also interesting to realize that Balaam lost his life in this encounter. He was killed by the Israelites. Chapter 31, verse 8 says, Among the victims were Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Bor, with a sword. He ended up dying as a result of the advice that he gave. But he understood, he learned the lesson and then applied it inappropriately that our company is so incredibly, incredibly powerful. Proverbs 24.1 says, Do not envy the wicked. Do not desire their company. For their hearts plot violence and their lips talk about making trouble. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise, for the com- a companion of fools will suffer harm. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. And I've, I've shared this example before, but to me... It's still one of the most potent examples that I can think of in in my mind. When I was living in uh, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, I was studying at Bible school. And I was going to a Spanish congregation because my heart was to be a missionary in Mexico someday, which I did get to fulfill. But at that time, I would go to my church in the morning. And then I would go to a Spanish congregation in the afternoon. And I met... Two college girls there that were there from Oral Roberts University, a Christian college that was nearby. I wasn't attending that college. I was attending a Bible school in, in Broken Arrow, which would be like Hudsonville to Grand Rapids type thing. So I was off in a different area, and I met these two girls who were just missions fanatics. And they went on mission trips every year, and they were studying at this Christian university, I think if I remember right they were both studying nursing and they wanted to be missionaries themselves someday and Oral Roberts University was a Christian college the dorms were separated men and women could not ever 
go into the other people's dorms. They didn't have that. Except, like, I don't remember what it was, once a semester or something, they would have an open house where it was like, you know, come and you can see. And for like three hours in the afternoon, um, guys were allowed to go visit. And then they had another time and do that. And so these two ladies invited me, they were roommates, to come see their dorm and their place and whatever during that three-hour window. Well, I didn't know anybody at the college other than them for the most part. And so I said, okay. And I showed up at the beginning of those, that time. And I didn't know a bunch of people. So unlike the rest of the students who were just running around seeing their, all of their friends' you know, apartments, per se, I just knew them. So I sat there. And for three hours, guys kept coming by. And I can still remember the, the first guy who comes in, he says, hey, my name's Daniel. Oh, great. And... And, and he, then he says, oh, man. And he starts telling them, did I tell you about, have you seen the pictures of my trip? I just went to Nepal. And we went back there, and he was there studying uh, pre-med because his plan was to become a doctor and outfit airplanes on pontoons that would fly back to rural places and, and reach the people for the gospel and spread, use medicine to attract people and then share the gospel with them. And, and he tells all about that, and then he leaves. And then the next guy who comes in, talks about his trip that he just got back from China where he was smuggling Bibles and they almost got arrested. And, and he's talking about that. And I'm just sitting there. Like, I didn't know anybody at this school, but every person who was coming through this door were absolute, on-fire, Jesus-freak mission, missionaries. Then comes a guy comes through, and I don't remember his name, but he had a really thick accent. And he's like, oh, I am from Sri Lanka, and I am here because I am going to learn about the Lord, and then I'm going to go back and win my island for Jesus. Awesome. And then people, and for, for three hours, I just met Jesus freak after Jesus freak after Jesus freak. Now, what was interesting is I went away from there thinking, this is the most godly school ever. And then I start telling other people about, you know, oh man, yeah, I went there. The students there are just so on fire. And I started hearing other reports. Oh, I was at a party the other day and there was just a tons of students from there. And yeah, they're just party animals. And I started to realize, you know, there were, and I don't remember what the student body consisted of, 3,000 students, 4,000 students. I don't know if I met every single one of the godly ones, but I met most of them. Or a lot of them, or exclusively godly. Why? Because I had found two godly people who surround themselves with godly people. And my friends who had other experiences, and I say friends loosely, the people I talked to who had other experiences had that other experience because they had surrounded themselves with people of a different ilk, of different character. And so what did they do? They brought around all of the people who were like that. <laughs> I... I still remember, I don't see uh, Mike McNamara here anywhere, but there's a, there's a gentleman here in the church, his name is Mike, and he used to host um, UFC fight parties. So when there was a game, or I, say, I guess a fight, a match, he would invite a bunch of men over to his house, and we would watch the fight at 11 o'clock at night. And I used to go over there, and it was a blast. People that I ran into there included Mike Benson. This was before he used to speak here on a regular basis. Um, 
a bunch of the people from his Conqueror's team and a bunch of other guys. And, and Mike's wife just loves to cook snacks and different things like that. So there was always get up. And some of the guys would bring chips and dip and, and different things. So every time you'd go over there, I mean, it was like a smorgasbord buffet. He had a fully finished basement with a big old TV. And we'd be down there. And I just thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, that was my church group. And I went to work at a company one time, and the, a fella invited me to another UFC fight night men's group. And he was a Christian. So I thought, oh, I'll go. I had the same mental expectation. I got there, and I kid you not, there was nothing not alcoholic except the tap water. And there were no food or snacks of any kind. And they were there just, the, the, I mean, night and day difference. And I remember thinking, you know, I've been spoiled. I've been spoiled. I didn't realize how good I had it because of the, cho- the type of people I had chosen to surround myself with. He, or Hosea chapter 2 verse 12 says, If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew or some wine, olive oil or food, does it become consecrated? Now, the question, the better way of, of saying that is, if I have a clean rag and I touch something dirty... Is the rag clean? Or is the... No. Dirt contaminates clean more than clean contaminates dirt. And that's the point that Hosea is trying to make. We think, oh, I'll just go and make it better. And he says, be careful with that attitude. Be careful with that attitude. Sin is more contagious than purity. Jimmy Evans, who is a uh, minister, and he's been here over the years many, many times, and his speciality is, is, is marriage ministry. And he's famous for saying that his observation is that divorce is a communicable disease. He says when you find one person, then they spread that mindset through their friends. I'm somebody in here, if not most of you, are thinking, well, what about evangelism? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. Or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. <laughs> in that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing you to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So, to put it a different way, sin on a sinner is like fire in a fireplace. God says, hey, of course sinners sin. 
I'm not telling you, you can't eat with people of the world. He says, but a person who professes to follow Christ and then treats sin as if it's a good idea, celebrates the compromises in their life. That person, the person who is a drunkard, who is sexually immoral and says, oh, I'm a Christian, but it's okay. He says, that person, that's not fire in a fireplace. That's fire on the drapes. That you need to avoid. That is hypocrisy. That is what's dangerous. It is not dangerous to speak or eat with a sinner when we recognize that's who they are. The Bible doesn't say you can't talk to sinners. Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for doing what? Eating with sinners. He was eating with the sinners. Doing exactly what that verse says not to do with the hypocrite Christian, not the sinner. You see, when we, we, are, we are to be the salt and the light of the world. We are to choose our friendships carefully. Why? Because they will strengthen us. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. When we find someone who will encourage us, who when we start complaining about our spouse says, shut up, not tell me more. When we find someone like that, we need to hang around. Excuse me. So, it's better a sinner who sins openly than a Christian who excuses sin. And that's the, that's the difference. It's not, it's not the sinner, the, the Christian who struggles with sin. It's the Christian who excuses it. Because none of us are perfect. And it's not saying you can't, you know, once you're a Christian, you got to be perfect or nobody can, can even have dinner with you. No, it's, if, if I'm struggling, there's a big difference between saying, you know what? I know this is not the right way to do it. You know what? Losing my temper, it's not right. I do it sometimes. But I'm working at it. And hey, if you see me getting upset, if you see me using certain vocabulary, remind me that I have committed to, to, to do my best to get that out of my life. Versus, well, it's okay. It's okay for me because it's justified. I can do that because... No. It's that excusing when they say, you know what? I don't have to live right. I'm not going I'm going to do these things that I know displease God. I'm going to claim to put God first, but then I'm not. Here are some alarms that we should watch for. If 
your core group of friends is not moving in the direction you want your life to be moving in, that should be a red flag. If you look and you realize, you know what? The people that I surround myself with, this is their trajectory, and that's not where I want. I want to go this way, and they're all headed that way. Don't think, oh, it'll be okay. It won't. Bad company corrupts good morals. Another red flag is when you find yourself pretending to be like them. When you're trying to fit in. When the things that you worked at, when you've been working at cleaning up your vocabulary and you get around them and it's like, nah. When your heart says no, Ecclesiastes 10 verse 2 says, The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. When you find yourself moving away. And don't say, oh, well, I feel compassion for them. Here's the thing. Compassion will not require you to compromise. You can feel compassion. In fact, oftentimes, the most helpful thing you can be is not in the car when it crashes so you can help them. If you get in the car, oh, I'm going to be compassionate. That's like getting in the car with a drunk driver. How do you help them from the passenger seat? You don't. You help them by not being there. Another red flag, if your spouse says that person changes you, you know what you need to say? Okay. Some of you are squirming. Some of you are glad your spouse wasn't here tonight. But God has made you a team. And if your spouse sees that there is a particular person or persons who are having a negative effect on who you are. Now, spouses say this in love. I don't want anybody to go home and start smacking their spouse around being like, hey, I told you, you got to get rid of so-and-so. No, in love. So you know what? I see that person pulling you down and I know you are better than that and when your spouse says that then listen listen when you feel pressure to compromise when you consider behavior you always felt was off limits you know I can remember like in high school I had a friend, and every time we got together, our mischief wasn't the classic mischief. We, we didn't drink booze. We didn't do drugs. We, didn't do, we blew stuff up. That was our thing. Or we climbed the tallest. Like, we just did risky behavior. And I mean, every time we would get together, it was like, okay, what, what risky thing can we do? And if you have a friend where you recognize every time I get together with them, I keep making choices I wouldn't make anywhere else and I don't know that it was a really good idea. Beware. Or if you say to yourself, 
I'll go, but not participate. I'll go, but not participate. So dangerous. So dangerous. Why play with fire? Why play with fire? I I think of someone, I recently heard a story of someone who lost a job opportunity of a lifetime because they spent time with a friend who engaged in some activities that they would have never engaged with on their own. And they lost employment opportunity just because in their interview they had to answer honestly. Well, I've been there, done that. And they missed their opportunity. Romans chapter 1, verse 32 says, They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, not only do they continue to do those very things, but also they approve of those who practice them. You know, God loves everyone. We are called to look at people through God's lens. And I hope nobody goes away from here thinking that we're encouraging people to look judgmentally at others. We've talked about it recently. God desires us to see people in the light of his calling and his potential on them. But he says, beware. If someone professes to be pleasing me and then is excusing the sin in their life, that is a slippery slope. Get away. One last red flag is when you hope the people you care about most don't find out where you've been or who you've been with. If you're hoping not to be noticed, that is a huge red flag. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 Abstain from all appearances of evil. Not just is it, but would it appear to be. And as I said before, compassion reminds you, will not require you to make unwise decisions. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise, for the companion of fools suffers harm. You know, some, some of the world's advice sounds good. It's not so good. You know, gambling, no when to quit. Premarital sex, not until you're ready. No. What's good advice? Not until you're married. I don't care how ready you feel. Gambling, it's never a good idea to be stupid. You know, I I think about how I... I like YouTube compilation videos. I like the, the, the crazy accomplishments or the fails all lined up in a row and just, I'll admit that's a weakness of mine. 
And I see these extreme folks who think that it's a great idea to, you know, go stand on the tippy top edge of a skyscraper and then, you know, have no rope and stand there and film themselves. And, and, and I'm just like, oh, no, that's not, that, that isn't what I most enjoy at all. In fact, I'm a rock climber. And there's the recent video movie. Does anyone remember? What's the name of that movie where the guy celebrates the free solo? So this is a, a video about a guy who is doing stupid as smart as possible. And he practices and practices so he can go up this cliff without any rope. And I just, I'm like, oh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. See, the devil, since Balaam's time and before, has been using that same strategy. You and I are blessed. Say it with me. I am blessed. God's protection is on me. And that is the truth. But I tell you what, we can step out from that protection when we choose stupid. When we choose to associate with the wrong people. Balaam wanted so bad to undermine the blessing and protection on the Israelites for that foreign king, that he gave him advice that sadly worked. I don't remember if it was 14,000 or 24,000 Israelites died as a result of that advice. Let's not be that person. If you're here today and you say, I know that my eternity is sealed, that I have been forgiven of my sins, and I will spend eternity with Christ if I die. I want you to raise your hand. Awesome! It's like almost every hand. If you're sitting here and you saw those hands up and you're thinking to yourself, how do they know? See, the Bible tells you to know that you have salvation. It doesn't say wait and find out. It says know. How do we know? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise from God. He says that we believe and confess and then we are saved. Saved from what? Saved from the sin that had us separated. In other places, he says that he will erase your sin make you white as snow that he cast that sin as far as the east is from the west if you want that forgiveness if you want to leave here knowing that your sins are forgiven and you are right with God with every eye closed here so no one is embarrassed I'm going to ask you if that's you if you want to know raise your hand right now and we're going to pray together I see a hand another hand all right Everyone together, repeat with me, but especially those of you who raised your hand. Say, Dear God, I believe that you sent Jesus, who lived a perfect life, 
did not deserve to die, but he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that he died and that he rose again. I make you the Lord of my life. I'm going to serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.